Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to The State of Us. Beyond mainstream cable news and party lines. With a millennial and a boomer, The State of Us pushes past the noise and uncovers all the issues that matter. Here's your host, Justin T. Weller. What if we doubled the human lifespan? It might sound like a crazy notion, and understandably why, but between 1920 and 2020, the average human lifespan did in fact double. How did we do it? Science mattered, but so did activism, according to a recent New York Times Magazine piece, which is extensive. Today, we're going to highlight some of the key points and discuss some very surprising facts about how things like wealth didn't matter in life expectancy. And milk was a leading culprit in cities throughout the world of death. These might sound like bizarre facts, but they're woven into our very recent history and they're part of what made it possible for us to more than double the human lifespan. Could we do it again and what would that mean for us? Well, questions like this could only be answered with the assistance of True Chat senior historian and an educator of more than 30 years. Here is your friendly redneck liberal, Lance Jackson. Well, I'm not going to take too long because I want to get into the information, but I have an exalted feeling about today's show. And that's our word of the day, exaltation, E-X-A-L-T-A-T-I-O-N. It is a noun, and it means a feeling of great joy, pride, or power. And I'm exalted about having the opportunity to share this article with you. And you need to read it. You know it's linked at the State of Us. Uh, it is an extensive piece from the New York Times Sunday Magazine, but it is one of the best pieces, writings that I've read this year. And it's got so many neat things in it, not only for medicine, but also historical and positivity for us in the future if we can continue to do some of these things. So without further ado, let's get started. When we read this article, I immediately thought of Immortality Inc., right? right? Which was the, it's a book for those of you that don't know, and we had the author on the show. He's a National Geographic Explorer, Chip Walter. And um, I, I highly recommend the read, but one of the things that we didn't really get to talk about in that one, but we touched on was what would the implications be of doing something like doubling or tripling the human lifespan, you know? I mean, how would we deal with that? How could it happen? What would we do? Well, we actually have a, a very recent historical example from 1920 to 2020 to point to and say, uh, we've already done that. Right. It's not as far-fetched when you read that book. It's not as far-fetched now when you realize that we've already done this. And I'm not sure a lot of people realize that, we, I mean, you know, I, I guess, I suppose I knew it technically, but you never really think about it in terms of doubling the lifespan, right? The average life expectancy for somebody in 1920 was half what it was just last year in 2020. Yep. And that's crazy. I mean, that's huge. And one of the things that all sticks around out, the world, this isn't just the United right. States. I mean, it's, this it's is in worldwide the worldwide. It's life in expectancy. the United States as well, but it's worldwide. This is something that we've we've accomplished 
as a world, as, as, as a world of people. We so closely in our politicians and everybody today, you hear about talking about how life expectancy, right? And general health is tied to how much money do you have, right? The, the wealth and income gap that we see in society and what a difference that makes to all components of life. But interestingly enough, before the year 1750, wealth actually didn't matter with life expectancy based on all the data we had, whether you were, you know, rich or poor, educated or not, you basically lived, you had about the same life expectancy, no matter what, right? No amount of money escaped life expectancy. And then things started to change. And that was the beginning of things with the smallpox vaccine, right? Correct. And you know what, what's interesting and what I learned in the article was that the smallpox vaccine can be traced back to the 10th century in China. You know, we think of it mostly as being from England in the 1700s um, and the whole idea of the cowpox and opening up the arm and then spreading it, you know, cutting the arm open of an individual. I and just think putting, about people are afraid of vaccinations now. Right, they can't get a shot. <laughs> and they used to take a knife and slice your arm open and put the, the actual the, the, pus yeah. into your arm yeah. to develop the immunity to it. But, you know, that's something. And it was very, as a historian, we read about it, that Washington had the troops vaccinated. Oh, wait a minute. Talk about vaccines. Mandatory, what, what, right? It was a mandatory vaccination for the military because he was losing so many troops to the smallpox that um, he didn't have enough troops to fight. And some historians say that was a, one of the turning points of the war when the Americans vaccinated uh, themselves from this disease. But yeah, and the reason it was going was because it'd been around a long time, but it took time for it to spread. But people were doing it because royal families were being wiped out. So to your point that, you know, 250 years ago, it didn't matter if you were rich or not. These diseases struck everybody. And so it was like, well, we all have to get together and find a way to make it work. And wow, there's that concept again, right? We all have to get together and find a way to make it work. And then, oh, wait a minute, even if you don't want it, we're going to mandate it. We're going to say this is what needs to be done because it's for the betterment of all. And part of what created that wealth income gap, and you just touched on it, was that actually it was a lot of royalty and the upper classes that started to embrace it because they were dying at these rates. And they said, you know, we got to do something about this. Um, I mean, it became in a lot of ways a concern for their continued existence, right? We can't because, stay in power yeah. if our offspring <laughs> if we have continue no heirs. to die. Yes. <laughs> you know, that poses an issue. So um, so that's that's pretty fascinating. But then the other thing is, you know, so you see things start to get better, get better, get better, right? Through like, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s. And then we have industrial industrialization that starts to kick in, right? And we see massive increases in productivity, right? And and wealth. But we also see that now what started to happen is we got all these people living and working in close quarters. And we've got to have centralized water and centralized sewer. And we got these farm animals in our cities. And all of a sudden, right, we've got problems. And one of those problems was surrounding Milk. Well, yeah, and, it, and the, the whole point is, is that we saw these gains and then industrialization in the 19th century 
basically wiped out all those gains in life expectancy. Because like you said, as we started to find out, the more people live together, the easier it was for disease to spread. And you say, well, yeah, duh, everybody knows that. Well, they didn't then. That was something that we found out. And then it was like, okay, so now we have a new set of problems that we have to deal with. And to your point, milk was known as liquid poison because it was like, well, and you you talked about this off air with me, You the day of waking up, you know, your famous person, John Adams, would wake up and he'd want some milk. So they'd go out and milk the cows and he'd have some milk for breakfast. And then they'd go on about their daily work and he'd want some more milk at night with his dinner before he went to bed. So they'd go out and milk the cow. So there was nothing to worry about the freshness. And the nearest farmer was 10 or 12 miles away. So the animals didn't interact with other animals or or other humans. So there was no chance of disease spreading. But now you have all these people flooding into London and New York City and Philadelphia, and you have thousands of people living here. Well, the milk has to be, you know, on a horse-drawn carriage from miles away. Well, what happened to the milk? Well, it spoiled. And so it became- And then people drank. And people drank it. And so it became known as liquid poison. You know, and how do we fix that problem? Well, then you have uh, the gentleman whose name is part of the process, right? Pasteurization came into play. And in fact, uh, this is fascinating. It was 50 years after he actually first developed it that you started to see it being used in the United States. And pasteurization, for those that don't know, uh, is, is basically simply put, it's heating the milk. Um, to a given temperature and then rapidly cooling it. And the reason you do that is it kills harmful bacteria in the milk, makes them inactive. Um, and they found out it doesn't degrade nutritional value of the milk, you know, in any substantial way. And, right, it removes a lot of the risks. It increases how long the milk can stay good for. And that's why today uh, you see that um, in many cities, it is illegal uh, to to sell unpasteurized milk. You have to, you may only sell pasteurized milk because of the dangers associated with unpasteurized milk. To the point of your opening, though, it took an activist to get it done. It was This wasn't government-led, but there was a department store owner um, who decided to take this process and he opened up milk depots in New York City, in the low-income part of the city, and he sold it for less than it took him to produce it. And he started saving lives, and it got the attention, 14%. Mortality rates among children, among all people, dropped by 14%. And it caught the eye of Theodore Roosevelt. Who then ordered a study, right? Who was president (laughs) at the time. And if you remember, we did a book on Theodore Roosevelt, and he was big on the health of the nation. And he ordered a study and it's like, wow, this is working. And Chicago actually became the first U.S. city to require pasteurization. And by the early 1920s, unpasteurized milk had been outlawed in almost every major American city. But again, it was an individual making it happen that caught the eye of government, which then studied it and then, boom, took it and made it to where now we can all drink milk and we're not dying from it like they were in the early 20th century. 
Well, because a big part of this whole piece, right, is this idea that science, social activism, and government had to work together in order for most of these things to become widespread and have the impact that they ultimately had on our topic, right, which is life expectancy. You know, you think life expectancy and and things like milk don't immediately come to mind as having been a huge component of making that possible. But in fact, it was a major component. Uh, people have been drinking milk from animals for, you know, thousands of years. Um, but up until very recently, we didn't do anything to make it safer. Now we make it safer. Now we can still consume it and get a lot of the nutritional benefits from it without the inherent risks that were present for the vast majority of human history. And I think that's what we see in a lot of this stuff is finding ways, things that were problems, right, that we faced ongoing throughout history. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about next, infant mortality. Huge problem. It wasn't so much, you know, not just when you become an adult, how long are you going to live, but your chances of making it to adulthood were abysmal. You know, they were not not good odds on a worldwide scale. Uh, what do you think so far, though, about what we've discussed? Please send us an email, podcast at thestateofus.org. We'd like to hear your thoughts. Do you find it as interesting as Lance and I do? Did you know that milk was a huge component of changing life expectancy, over doubling it in a hundred year period? We've got more to talk about, including infant mortality and everything else that contributed to a doubling of life expectancy, things like penicillin. To find out more, keep it here on The State of Us, and we'll be right back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the state of us. Here's your host, Justin T. Weller. A lot of things contributed to a doubling of human life expectancy worldwide between 1920 and 2020. Milk was a major component, and part of a number of these different components made a change to infant mortality rates, right? And that's what we're looking at next is this idea that, and in fact, you mentioned John Adams before, he's a great example of somebody who had multiple children and lost multiple children in childhood. And this was, I mean, we all think about this now as it's a travesty, right? To hear about, uh, you know, a parent that loses a child because we are all used to having, especially if you live in the United States, grown up in a world where that is unusual, right? It's not typical to hear about parents who have lost a child. Usually, 
you know, the child grows up and they experience the loss of their parent. But just back in the 17 and 1800s, it was very common. Many parents were familiar with the loss of a child because if you had five or six children, the odds were that one or two of them would probably die before making it out of childhood for lots of different reasons. But that's part of what changed life expectancy was we improved the likelihood that you're going to make it out of childhood. No, to your point, it, it is much improved, right? The, uh, the United States is at its lowest ever infant mortality deaths, just under six deaths per thousand births. The interesting side note and kind of sad when you think about the United States is we rank 33 out of 36 in developing countries in stopping infant mortality. So while we have improved it and we're better than we've ever been, we're still near the bottom in comparison to the rest of the world. And there's your impact where we started with, well, it didn't used to matter how much money you have. And now we know because we've said it on the show, right? The biggest fact towards how healthy you will be is your zip code. So the question becomes, what made the difference? I mean, all these children, right, used to die, now substantially less die. Why? Well, in early childhood, right, you're a lot more susceptible to all manner of diseases and infections. And those were very prevalent, weren't they? Right. What do you drink? Well, you, if, you, if you're drinking water. milk, we talked milk, right? And if you're not drinking milk, it's water. And so, well, what's in water? Well, again, bacteria. Especially and, when you have centralized water systems, like in the big cities after industrialization. Well, and you don't have sewage systems. And you're like, what do you mean? No, the sewage used to run into the streets and go into the ground. And we, we know that- Throw in, the in, chamber pot out the window, right? In early Jamestown and, and places like that, that was one of the biggest problems was cholera because they didn't understand how their waste was going into their drinking water. And so- um, they didn't, I mean, no, they did because it didn't show up. The bacteria is not there. I mean, you know, right. there's things. Yeah, you that can't we, look at you it. You can't look at it. Oh, that's, that's got bacteria in it. That's going to harm me. Um, but they figured that out. So we chlorinated water, you know, and by the middle 19 teens, uh, almost every major city, Chicago, Detroit, Cincinnati, by all by 1920 had chlorinated water. And we saw that again, rear its ugly head when we talk about Flint, Michigan. You know, with the old pipes and we talk and, and again, weaving other things into it, the whole infrastructure bill of, well, gee, we haven't replaced some of these water systems and sewer systems for almost 100 years now. And so they're going to start to corrode and, and what's in our water, you know, and we're finding out that in some places, it's things that are not very healthy. And again, it tends to be for those in the lower classes, which is why we, we still have an infant mortality rate. That's so much better than it used to be, but still not as good as it is in the rest of the world. So th these are all things that we've done before to improve, which, you know, in the last segment of the show, stay tuned because it's like, well, where do we go from here? Do we double it again in the next hundred years? Or are we going to do away with all of the gains that we've made? So, but there you go, right? Chlorinated water, things get good. And then we also then what about a bunch of other childhood diseases? What do we do for those? So ah. we, we get good milk to drink or safe milk to drink. We get safe water to drink, but that's not the whole story. What else is there, Justin? Well, vaccines, right? An explosion of vaccines, in fact, because we talked about kind of smallpox early on, and, and that was kind of the early one, but you had a lot of issues, right, with whooping cough, tuberculosis, polio, and others. 
And you look at the early 1900s and 1914, 1921, 1923, early 1950s, we're releasing all of these vaccines and people are getting them on a widespread. I mean, when's the last time that you heard, you know, a child in the United States dying of whooping cough? Well, you, you probably can't think of an example. And the reason you can't or tuberculosis is because or polio, right, is because we developed vaccines and they were widespread use. And as we know, as a child, you're far more susceptible as a very young child to those kinds of things because you haven't gone through enough to build up your immune system strength, you don't have the same capacity to fight those things as as many, you know, healthy adults do. When as you do as a child, as, as a baby, like it's like, I don't know, and I should have looked this right. up, but I remember with my daughters years and years ago, you know, at six months or whatever, you get your DPT shot. And then at two or whatever, and please, yeah, you can send in your emails and correct me and say, I'm giving, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this is fact, but I know them before school at a very young age as a toddler, you get the booster shots for your DPT. And you also, in that process, get your polio vaccine. And it's all a part of taking your child to the doctor for for those checkups in their first, you know, two to three years of life. And we give them these things and they're safe. And now you don't hear of children dying of these diseases anymore because we are vaccinating everybody if they get to the doctor. Again, there's your wealth inequity, but for, you know, you take them and that's just part of, you know, and you have to have those to go to school, right? You have to show re- immunization records as a toddler so that you can enter public education. And the other big one, I mean, in addition to vaccines, because here's the thing, right? And I think the article does a nice job of pointing this out. Remember, for those of you that want to read it, it's linked at thestateofus.org. That's our website, thestateofus.org. It's linked there. Um, But it does a good job of pointing out that up until this time, medicine was mostly focused on, you know, if we can keep you from getting sick, you know, then you have a better chance. But once you get sick, there really was very little that medicine could do for you other than provide comfort, right? I mean, and this is Lance jokes about this sometimes, but hospitals were the place that you went a lot of times to die, right? Because there really wasn't a lot that they were going to do to cure you per se up at, you know, through the 18, everything before the 1800s and early 1900s, there wasn't a lot they could do. It was just, you know, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll medicine, comfort Medicine you, and science you know? had worked on trying to stop you from getting sick. Right. They had not spent time on, okay, how do we heal you? And, and that's where penicillin comes into play, right? Is the widespread use uh, and implementation of penicillin um, basically, right, was the floodgates opening on antibiotics, which allowed us for the first time to really fight illness on the front lines, inside the body, um, very actively and very effectively. And of course, it led to all manner of other antibiotics, um, which are widespread today. And that was the other thing is because no matter, I mean, we had vaccines for a lot of these important things, but kids still got sick. Right. Right. And, and once they got sick, it was like, well, hopefully they come through it. Right. And if they don't, then they die, you know, and, and that's all there is. And now it's, well, now there's something we can do. We can try to fight this. Right. But in every major war in every battlefield before world war two, the major killer was disease. 
you know, was, uh, it, it, that's it was, why Washington it, inoculated, right? Right. But I'm, you know, all of a sudden gangrene, I'm thinking world, you know, I'm thinking of the civil war gangrene and, and diseases that you've got because the surgeons were using, uh, the same, didn't know how to clean their utensils and didn't know that was a thing that they were actually transferring germs from one person to another as they operated on them to try to save their life. And the reason I mentioned that is penicillin was basically developed folks during World War II. That was the whole idea behind it. Now, there had been some playing around with it, but the idea was, oh, this works, but we can't produce it on a large enough scale. I mean, the first person who got penicillin was a police officer in England who actually got better. The problem is they ran out of penicillin. And then he died. And he died. He went back. He started getting sick again. And so they're like, okay, we're on to something. How can we mass produce this? Well, the English were leading, were leaders in this. And, but they were, looked like they were going to be invaded by Germany here in 1941 and 1942. So they contacted, of all people, the Rockefeller Foundation and said, well, can you guys do something about this and help us? And the Rockefeller Foundation got into bringing these scientists to the United States so they could be safe from German bombs. And in the biggest secret, other than the Manhattan Project, which was the development of the atomic bomb, the U.S. military, along with these English scientists and other scientists, went to work on developing the process to mass produce penicillin. And by the time the U.S. landed on the beaches of Normandy, they had with them enough penicillin to keep the troops alive if they weren't killed by the bullets or the bombs or the, the explosions. They now had a way to treat what in previous wars had been deadly germ situations. We now had a way to keep these soldiers alive. And in that same line of working to keep you alive, a lot of times when your body's ill, one of the common issues is that you become what? dehydrated, right? Your body's fighting. It's struggling, you know, to get through this. It's using a lot of energy, using a lot of water, right? Using a lot of resources. And another one of the great equalizers was IVs, right? This basically, this basic concept of injecting directly into you uh, some nutrients and the hydration that you need to keep going. And while this started to become known, there were some places in the world where we, we don't have people, right, who are qualified to put IVs in. And that led to the thinking of the oral rehydration system, right, which is basically the very low-tech version of an IV, giving people lots of water to drink, boiled water, lots of boiled water, and you supplement it with sugars and salts, which is, for those that don't know, from a medical standpoint, very similar to what's in IV fluids, right? And, of course, the whole concept of IV fluids uh, has transferred into a whole host of other things that we do through intravenous injection, right? And through those nice bags hanging in the hospital that sends you all kind of stuff. But it's again on that same line of, okay, you're ill now. You don't have to die from being ill, right? We can give you antibiotics. We can get you rehydrated. We can do things to keep you alive to get through this where before you just get sick and you die. What if your water was filled with cholera bacteria then you die from drinking the water, which is what you need to defeat the flu and the cold and everything else. Hence so, drinking lots of boiled water, right? right? Very sterilized water. And we add salt and sugar, electrolytes, right? To give your body energy again. 
And now we've started to solve one of those common issues of, well, you're sick, but you're drinking water that's bad. Well, think of Pedialyte, but that's a first world thing, right? Mm -hmm. We'll go to the store and we'll pick up a bottle of Pedialyte to give it to our young people. But if you're not in an area where that you have that, which is a majority of the world population, you can make basically the same now thing. what they've done is they've sent out, you know, private citizen groups who, who go to villages and say, here, here's all you need to do. You boil this water, throw this stuff in it, and your child will who would have died now lives. And they think, oh, wow, you've got major modern medicine. And all it is is homemade Pedialyte. You know, so that's the big thing is that we've taken these ideas that we've learned and we've had implementation around the world that you don't have to go to the store to get it. You can do it wherever you are. If you have water and you have salt and sugar, which almost you can find that anywhere in the world, and you have fire, you can take care of this situation for people. And and we've taken it and not just, it's not like we developed in a laboratory and said, oh, this is what you can do. We then took it to the people and said, here's what you can do and showed them how to do it. And I think that's the key. Sometimes we, we hold on to information and we don't share it with others. And it's the sharing with others that leads to the major changes. So we've still got to look at the, the last big thing on this checklist, which was vanquishing smallpox. How was it done and what was the significance? And also, what's next? To find out, keep it here on The State of Us, and we'll be right back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. We are the state of us. Here's your host, Justin T. Weller. The defeat of smallpox is arguably one of the greatest feats mankind has ever seen. And you might say, how is that possible? Well, smallpox was about as deadly as it gets, uh, very deadly. Um, it was far more contagious than COVID-19 with a 30% mortality rate, right? That means that if you got smallpox, there was a 30% chance that you would die. It killed 30% of people that got it. So that's pretty bad. I mean, those are not good odds, right? You not got, very good odds at, at all. <laughs> you got a three in 10 chance that this thing's probably going to kill you. Now you might say, well, you know, let's put that in perspective, right? Well, I mean, we know we're go we got everything going on with COVID and you know, all the turmoil that it's causing amongst the world. Well, in the United States, you're talking about 1.7%, right? Versus 30%. So you can imagine, I mean, everything you're hearing about COVID multiply that like 30 times over, and now you're talking about the scale and death of smallpox, right? And that's just in the United States where it's only 1.7%. And, we, and we've wiped out smallpox. Exactly. And, and so the point is, uh, in places that, you know, quote unquote, COVID is really bad, it's 9.2%. Peru is the worst. But worldwide, it was 30% for smallpox and we were able to wipe it out. And the point is, think of the, the feet Wait a minute, how, how did we do required. that? How did we wipe out smallpox? Well, this is where, right? This is the article. This is science, social activism, and governments working together 
to overcome what was arguably, you know, something that could have come close to ending the human race. With vaccines. Those three are getting together with the vaccinations and developing a plan to get vaccines into the arms of all the people in the world where there were still sporadic outbreaks so that it didn't spread. And that's why, why we've been able to basically eradicate, get rid of the smallpox. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I wanted to mention that we hadn't, that we kind of missed, and that is all of this was developed through an idea that came about with penicillin, and that is RCTs or randomized control trials. And you hear that all the time now. And I just wanted to mention that this was something that we've developed. So when they say, well, we've got a control group and we're testing it and we're going to see this. And, you know, we just got, you know, uh, FDA approval for the uh, Pfizer vaccine. Okay. All of that, when people say, well, this is this, this is that, this is something we've been doing since before World War II. This is, you know, when people say, well, this is science, this is what we've, you know, this isn't new. We didn't go through a new way to get this done. This is something that, as the article points out, was established when they were working with penicillin, these random control groups, these random control trials that we do. And we do that with with everything now. And so when people are like, well, we did this and this is different, this is different. Not really. You know, we've done all of this. But the big question to me, Justin, and whatever you want to, whatever else you have too, but I like the way the article ends. It, it, It asked a very basic question. Will the rising tide of egalitarian public health, meaning the equality of public health, continue to lift all the boats in the water? Or will all these achievements be washed away like industrialization did in the 19th century by an actual tide? I think there's a lot of good news from this article, right? I mean, the capacity of human society to double our own lifespan in a matter of a hundred years is pretty freaking impressive. I think so. But there's a big of all this stuff, right? Which is very positive, very encouraging. There's one thing in here that we talked about very early on. That's kind of easy to brush over. And the one big negative is that again, in this modern era, the one thing that changed was before 1750, right? Wealth made no difference. Wealth makes a huge difference now. If you look at the correlation between how much money you've got and how long you're likely to live, there is a very real, very easy to see trend that the more you have, the longer you're likely to live and the healthier you're likely to be. And the point of me bringing this up is to answer Lance's question, I'm not sure what the average human lifespan will look like. I think what we're going to see, and Chip talks about this in Immortality Inc., right, is an increase in the top possible lifespan. In other words, we talk about that right now, and we know that for most, you know, well, not most, but for humans, it is not terribly unheard of for somebody to live to be over 100, right? I mean, that is still unusual, but we know that it happens. We know there's people who are 100, 110, and some that have made it to What's well, the fasting, fastest growing segment of the population. Yes. Now, I know that's numbers and math and, you know, you people that understand that, yes. you're going to say, well, but that's just because there's not very many of them. So when you get five more, it really raises the rate. You're exactly right. Yes. But still, that technically, that is true. That is the fastest growing segment 
uh, age group in the world. And obviously scientists have been studying that. And we know that it comes from certain parts of the world and one place in the United States as well. National Geographic has done an article on this. And we know that lifestyle and diet and all of that, you know, the, the Greece and the Mediterranean diet, because that's where, you know, this small group of people uh, have just yeah, very whole, commonly that's where they are. 80, 90, and 100 years old, and they're still working farms and tending to sheep and everything else. And so we're like, oh, what are you guys doing? Well, they're getting out and walking every day, and they have low uh, saturated fats, and they eat a lot of vegetables and, you know, drink a little wine. And that's where all of our studies have, you know, that we say that those are the kinds of things if you want to live a longer life. Yep. But then you also have, though, what are we going to find in medicine? What are we going to find in science that kills people now that won't kill people in the future? Like we know that the ice age people had cancer. They always died of something before the cancer ever developed. We can go back through right. and see in there. They have bone. cancer. They just didn't live long enough for the cancer to kill them. <laughs> right. And now we're yeah. living longer. So it's like, oh, look at cancer. Okay. But we find the cures to that. Does that mean life expectancy will will rise again or not? You know, those those are the questions that I have. Well, the contention of our book, right, or the Immortality Inc. book is that the single biggest killer is aging, right? Right. Because to that point, nowadays, most people, when you die, right, you die after the age of 30, not before the age of 30. And that's kind of this whole concept of, this is where science is taking us. What if we could, you, in other words, you still get older, but you don't age the same way. You age much slower. Now, how long could you live? And to my point from before, I think the reason what we're going to see, my guess is, you know, so people check this in 50 years and see if I was right. We're going to see a big increase in the top possible lifespan of a human being. In other words, instead of it being unusual to live to 100 there will be many people that live to be 100. There will be many people that maybe live to be 150, 200 years old. But those will be people with the means to live that long. That'll be most people you see living that long will be the people that could have afforded in their 20s to get whatever this you know treatment will be that will essentially slow down the process of aging your body, thereby allowing you to live a longer period. And part of what Chip points out in his book is that's likely to cost a lot of money because there's a lot, there's billions of dollars being invested in this and you can bet your bottom dollar that they're going to want every penny of that back, right? So they got to make a lot. Um, it's probably not something that's going to be released to the wide public. So to answer your question, I think we're going to see people living a lot longer. I don't think that's going to be most people. So what happens to the average human lifespan anybody's guess. And that's not even taking into account the possibility of war, right? Or climate change or anything well, else. Well, like I so. said, I was excited to bring this to you because I think it's a really positive thing. Uh, brings a lot of positive ideas to light that we can apply to today. And hopefully you do too. Um, but that's our mission here at True Chat. And that's to educate people by providing honest, open, and respectful conversations. And do take a look at the article. Tell your friends about it around the water cooler as you work back into the office or if you're still working remotely on Zoom and say, you know, there's this great podcast out there and you need to hook up into it because it just brightens your day and you find out things that you hadn't thought about or hadn't been told by the major media outlets in the, in the world. So 
And they said, well, how can I find it? Tell them. Well, the state of us is on Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are found. Part of what this proves, Lance, I think, is that when science, social activism, and government come together, there's not a lot that we can't do. And that's hopefully what we've communicated today. Make sure to tell people that you can get new episodes of The State of Us Tuesdays and Thursdays by 4 a.m. Eastern time as a podcast. And of course, you can hear us on the weekend and select AM and FM talk radio markets across the country. For The State of Us on True Chat in Urbana, Ohio, I'm Justin T. Weller. I'm Lance Jackson. Special thanks to our producer, Bradley Butch. And thank you all, our audience, as always, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Be the change. Be sure to check out our website, thestateofus.org, for books, articles, and all the ways to tune in, thestateofus.org.